Welcome to the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. Do you like cooking, reading about food, or even just eating? Then this podcast is for you. My co-host Charlotte and I work in the food industry. We'll be taking you behind the scenes, meeting the people who make it all happen, and showing you what's going on. Together, we'll bring you an inside view from the food industry with our unique perspectives from our work behind the scenes in food creation and production. Every week, along with our special guests, we'll cover different foodie topics, from baking to growing your own, home cooking, outdoor cooking, and even booze. Our aim is to take a positive look at what the nation is cooking and eating right now. There's so much adaptation, galvanization, and collaboration across the entire food system at the moment. And we'll be talking to some very special guests about the changes in their world, professional and personal, about remodeling, rethinking, and innovating with so much turned upside down and sharing some unique perspectives from field to fork. We'll also consider what food will look like in the future, in the home and outside. This podcast is sponsored by Moorish Hummus, a tasty treat for when eating in is the new going out. Moorish produces a range of delicious dips, including smoked hummus and now new velvet hummus. Moorish is available in Sainsbury's, Ocado and many other stores. Every week, our lucky listeners will be in with the chance to win some delicious dips in our competition at the end of each show, along with some other exciting gifts. I'm Jules Waddell, founder of Moorish Hummus. Yes, there is a link. And I'm here with my co-host Charlotte, award-winning cookery, writer, teacher and chef. For more on us, check out lovemoorish.co.uk and charlottepike.co.uk. We'll also keep you updated on what shops are open when and for whom on our website pandemic-pantry.co.uk. So, it's time to pull up a chair at the table, sink into the sofa or relax into bed and get ready for the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Pandemic Pantry podcast. This week we'll be talking about what the new world of going out and eating out will look like. With restrictions lifting on where we go and how we can eat out, we'll be find out what's happening behind the scenes as restaurants and hotels are reopening. With all the changes involved in setting up staying safe and dining and how they're adapting to the new normal. And we'll hear about what the experience has in store for us all as hotel guests and diners going out in post-lockdown lockdown settings. Finally, in case this is the first episode you've listened to, we do like to say up front that we know the audio quality of our content isn't perfect and occasionally contains the odd glitch. This is due to the nature of the pandemic and the fact that we and our guests are recording from home with a less than optimal audio acoustics and the occasional Wi-Fi wobble. Finally, we've loved receiving your questions as always about cooking during COVID and we'll talk to Charlotte about that later in the show. So Charlotte, how are you? Hello Jules, I'm pleased to say I'm fine. Thank you very much. Another busy week here and I've noticed some unlocking in terms of getting out of the house. I've been to see my parents which was lovely and I've been down to Dorset and I've seen the sea breathing in all the fresh air which has been fantastic. So still kind of busy at home working, getting quite a lot of inquiries now, which is an encouraging thing for when work might start to pick up, although it's not really translating to much at the moment. So it's been a positive week, actually. Thank you. And how are things with you? 
Well, I'm glad to be to hear it's been good for you. Things here are fine. Not much change, actually. Like you, I can feel there's a sort of a looking to the future vibe and, and a feeling of change and what this summer holds. And, and on into the autumn, people are starting to think about what they might want to do, where they might want to go. In terms of my day-to-day life, there's absolutely no sign of my children going back to school, either of them. So we've got James in year eight, and there's no news about him, but I'm a bit surprised that we haven't heard anything about Anna in year 10, but we haven't. So we'll see, you know, obviously there's changes happening as lockdown is, restrictions are lifted almost day by day. So we'll see what happens, but it feels like nothing has changed or is changing today but there is change afoot and we'll see what that looks like. No news of meetings. So quite often I would travel from Devon up to London two or three times a month and have lots of meetings with people. Still no sign of people leaving their homes to go back to office buildings to have these meetings. Obviously I'm not going to travel to somebody corporate's own home and have a meeting with them there. We're doing all very well over Zoom, but not much talk of that changing. So it'll be interesting to see if and when people go back to real offices Absolutely. So yes, absolutely. So we've been really lucky. There is a a place in Stoke Gabriel where I live called the River Shack. And it's a beautiful sort of seafood based cafe restaurant. You can buy your crabbing gear if you know what crabbing is and, and take your children out to catch little crabs off the jetty. And that has reopened for a takeaway service. And that's been lovely, but very limited menu, limited staff. It's only the the couple that own it that have been in there working. But obviously now looking to potentially being able to go and sit outside and have something to eat is definitely something I'm looking forward to. Even if we don't have every restaurant in the country opening and available, it would be nice just to have somewhere that you think, I know that's open I can go there and just enjoy an evening out. Wouldn't that be lovely? The things we appreciate now, eh? Oh my goodness, totally, absolutely so, yes. And what about eating out? What have you been, are you able to get any takeaways from anywhere? We can, we're not really, we don't really eat takeaways. It's more, I like to take the family out. So, you know, it's about my memories as a child of, we didn't do it very often, but when we did, it was really special going out, the four of us and sitting down and, you know, the children learning about what it's like to go out for a meal and try different food that maybe I wouldn't think of cooking or they wouldn't think of eating, all of that. So I'm really holding off for being able to go out and have a family meal. The place that I'm talking about in the village, the River Shack, does have outdoor seating. So you've got a beautiful view over the mill pond and the river dart and lovely food. And I think if we can sit outside, then I feel really comfortable as soon as they're offering that, then I shall be taking them up on it. What about you? How are you feeling about it? And what have you been able to do? Well, very little actually, but where I am, I really don't have restaurants nearby and I don't really have a pub, don't have a restaurant and I don't have a restaurant which is doing a takeaway, for example. So I don't really have many options available. I've been asking around and sadly, a lot of businesses have just shut up shop locally. So I don't have that option at the moment, but I will be looking at it when it when it opens up. I mean, to be able to do that, I will probably need to look at potentially traveling for about 20 to 25 minutes drive to get somewhere, even if it's sort of to pick up a takeaway. So I'll be really interested to do that as soon as I can. But it's been a source of some sadness, I suppose. And, you know, I don't really have that available. So I am cooking every single day. And also I have 
really got too much choice of businesses to support, which obviously I want to be doing. So most of the time I eat in restaurants is when I'm traveling or going to other places rather than being at home. So that's something I'll look forward to when I'm starting to move around a bit more in due course. I think I saw on your Instagram feed something about you'd counted up the number of meals that you've prepared cooked served and washed up just for you and your partner since this all kicked off is it 211 yeah it was and that was that count is rapidly out of date so that is lunch and supper every day every single day and I do make a proper lunch as well there have been two occasions where I haven't made lunch and at on the weekends I do I do a breakfast for us as well just well, scrambled egg on toast, but that's still another meal to cook and clean cooking. up afterwards, isn't it? And washing I up. I have lost track of the number of times I've loaded and unloaded the dishwasher. Oh, I know. <laughs> First world problems, but I hear you. Well, listen, tell him from me that I say you deserve a meal out, at least a takeaway. I will. <laughs> Make sure you get one. Now that we can, we must, eh? I will. So on to the show, we have got a really exciting show this week. We have got two fabulous guests. The first guest we're going to speak to is Tom Parker-Bowles, food writer and restaurant critic. And we'll also be talking to Robin Hudson of the Pig Hotel Group. But first of all, let's hear from Tom and what he had to say. Tom Parker Bowles is an award-winning food writer and critic. Tom is the author of seven cookbooks and writes for a range of publications, including a weekly restaurant review for the Mail on Sunday. Just a few weeks ago, Tom won the Restaurant Writer Award at the 2020 Fortman Mason Awards for his work in Event, which is published by the Mail on Sunday. Tom Parker Bowles, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast. Thanks, Charlotte. <laughs> it's so nice to be speaking to you, Tom. Thanks for making time for us. And congratulations on your recent award. So, restaurant writing, how much of your own work has changed over the last few months? Big pivot, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> well, we've, we've slightly become, as restaurant critics, a slightly um, endangered or, or useless species because obviously as restaurants are closed, there's nothing to review. And you see, you know, the magazine I work for, Event, is about going out. So it's been shuttered obviously until, you know, we start going back to the cinema, back to the theatre, back to restaurants, that sort of thing. And, you know, other, my other colleagues under different newspapers, you know, the Jay Rayners, Giles Corran, Marinas, they've all been doing really interesting stuff about how much we love restaurants. But yeah, it's been, a, it's been an interesting time, having been a restaurant critic, I suppose, now for nearly 10 years, to not have the places that we love and adore and dote on or don't dote on everyone adapts absolutely and uh, we've been really enjoying some of your interviews you've been sharing which have been absolutely enlightening and you've been in close contact with chefs restaurateurs producers from all over the country thinking first of all about people in the hospitality industry what are they telling you at the moment what do you think the situation is it's a very mixed picture isn't it make or break for some businesses in the industry at the moment oh very much it seems that during the lockdown we had these these three months which you know obviously there was horrible death and loss and all sorts of negative things but there were positives out of it as well and speaking to producers and farmers across the country you find that there's a community spirit we're back to looking at where british where our food comes from supporting british farmers and all that sort of thing now Restaurants are entirely different. It's not, I mean, this government, I don't like to get into politics about things I don't know about, but I know a little bit about the food. And I feel that 
the hospitality industry, despite the sterling work of a few characters in it, you know, fighting Jonathan Downey and, you know, those, those sort of people, the government sort of seemed to think that, oh, yes, well, two metres, it might change to one metre, but, you know, you can just they're suddenly say, right, restaurants open, and the next day restaurants open like that. And it's just a completely different landscape restaurateurs are opening into. A huge amount of restaurateurs might not see it being economically viable to open again when you've got let's say let's hope that we have this one meter distancing because two meters is simply impossible to run a restaurant make any money make a living so we've got one meter distancing do we have to have perspex shields you know will the waiters and waitresses be removed from us in ppe what we all know is restaurants just aren't about food. We love the food, but it's about sitting down, breaking bread, enjoying each other's company, the buzz, the chatter, the hubbub, the feeling of, of being human beings and, 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 and sitting down and eating together. Who knows what it's going to look like when hopefully on July the 4th, restaurants are allowed to open and pubs. But no one quite knows how it's going to work. Is it going to work? Our play, you know, we've seen the Ledbury's not opening. In London, because Brett uh, Graham, the chef proprietor, says we can't really operate the sort of kitchen that I have with these rules in place. There's also things like Sardine, uh, Stevie Pearl and Alex's restaurant. They're saying it's just not worth it. We're seeing all these great restaurants, you know, not for any reason apart from it just won't work. We, the margins are so slim in restaurants that suddenly you're adding all this extra stuff and you're cutting the customers by half. We all worry how it's all going to be in the future. It is a worrying time. And as a food critic, you know, obviously I'm not on the front line. I'm just the one stuffing my, my fat gold, having a nice time. But it's the restaurateurs in this country and across the world that we worry about. What is the new restaurant world going to look like? None of us know. And I think you were making a nod to one of the key problems, which is the speed of changes happening without much notice. So restaurants aren't set up to operate in this new world and they certainly aren't set up to switch it on. You know, they all had to switch it off very, very quickly and there was no other choice. But in terms of switching it on at a week or two's notice, it's just not realistic, is it? No. Um, people think you could just turn on the lights, turn on the oven, but you have to you have to sort out your staff rotors. You have to sort out all this very important hygienic stuff about how far apart, where the stickers, what we're allowed to serve. Do napkins, do napkins have to be paper? Do your knife and forks get delivered with the food? Do the waiters and waitresses, are they wearing full masks? They've got to order in the food. They've got to do the menu. They've got to get everything going again. This is a massive, massive job. And the government have been awful for the hospitality industry. Yes, the Chancellor's done some good things. But this strikes me, this point now is a crucial point with everything open again. It's not like, oh, lockdown's over, it's all easy again now. This is the bit, this is the really worrying bit now to see, you know, a lot of restaurants will open and realise that they just can't continue to operate, losing money like Do you see what you write about changing to become not just the glorious food and the experience and the chef and the setting, but about the context and what a particular restaurant has been able to do and how well they're doing it? Or would you rather steer away from the more technical side of, you know, post-pandemic opening? How do you think that will work? I don't know. I mean, it's about adapting. We, our jobs rely on the restaurant industry being in fine health, but really, you know, a few of us were irrelevant really in the big picture because <laughs> if restaurants aren't opening and thriving and, 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 and doing wonderful things, there's, there's very little place for a restaurant critic. I would have thought that there would be no place in the next few months for those sort of excoriating sort of scathing reviews that are very fun to write and very fun to read. But 
it will be a different attitude. We're not there. You know, I try to, for nice restaurants and not have to do those, those reviews, but we all do it. And it just won't be the, the, the same climate for that sort of thing. It's not going to look at pick holes. It's now all of us pull together on the nationals, on the regionals, and just get out there and support the good restaurants that are still going. But who knows what it will look like in six months? You know, you look at the big groups, the Caprice Holdings with Richard Caring, they should be all right. They'll be able to survive. Although I see the Caprice has gone, but for different reasons. Yeah, it really is a brave or not so brave new world. I, we really don't know. I mean, none of us have a clue, do we, about, about how it's going to look. And it worries me because restaurants, we have such a great restaurant scene in the UK, all over the country, not just the big cities, but in the country. And it was just thriving, the hospitality industry. And it's not just restaurants, it's pubs. How are these going to work? Because we talk really jollily about, oh, it's fine, pub gardens. We live in Britain. It rains a bit here. We can't live in a pub garden. What happens in the winter when people are in? Um, It's just a, a real feeling of insecurity, fear, worry, and all the things that food in restaurants should provide. Happiness, a feeling of well-being, a feeling of being together, of sociability. Will this ever happen again? I hope so. I have faith in our restaurant industry to do so, but I don't know. It's the great unknown, isn't it? It is. One of the things uh, I mentioned that we were really enjoying is your interviews with food producers, growers, farmers, you know, smokers, cider makers, cheese makers. It's been so interesting hearing all of their stories. And that seems to be a real mixed bag as well. You know, I heard you speak to Johnny Crickmore. Um, We spoke to him in our episode four, which feels like forever ago now. But, you know, him talking about, I think he mentioned to you that they were selling almost as much cheese as they were at Christmas. And then, you know, the cider maker you spoke to, you know, it's just so sad hearing about how just all of their routes to market have just disappeared in front of their eyes. You've heard some amazing stories. It's such a mixed picture for the producers as well. It's so tough for them. Oh, massively. And, and what, you know, you're trying to look for a glimmer of light. And the, and the joy of doing that crisis in the country for Mel Plus was, obviously, the, the, you know, I've been a restaurant for 10 years, but still at heart, I'm a food writer. I'm interested in the stories like we all are of producers and of British produce without being jingoistic and flag waving, you know, celebrating how great our produce is. And a lot of people said, you know, they were standing on the edge of an abyss when the lockdown came, when their route to markets or their hospitality things dried up but you look at things like the courtyard dairy how they've adapted they've kept british cheese making alive same with neil's yard and their their british cheese boxes 24 quid you could send them out to friends i mean i've just done one with uh, jamie montgomery a few weeks ago but it's just out today you know some of the greatest cheddar on earth jamie down in north cadbury and his ogle shield and people have adapted they've been really really sort of proactive they've had to they've been forced to do it butchers you know, they couldn't move. I was speaking to, to Ian Warren from Philip Warren and, you know, to people in uh, Yorkshire all over the place. The butchers were doing great guns, but they had to get the supply chains going. And, and, and you know, the farmers who, who so much business relied on the hospitality trade. So like you say, yeah, Julian Templey, Burrow Farm, fantastic cider brandy. He'll survive, I hope, because he's good and he's been going for a long time. But with Glastonbury, which is a huge amount of their yearly profit, really, and people are just being pragmatic and saying, well, there's nothing we can do. We're thankfully not dead. We're still going. But they've just had to turn on the sixpence, basically, and completely change their business model. And that makes me proud to see what people have done and how they've all come together. It's brought communities together 
as we look about where our food comes from, we'll look at where our food comes from. It's a great thing for British agriculture, this. Although it's an awful, awful, awful pandemic that kills. I'm saying that, you know, out of the darkness comes a few shafts of light. Well, it's interesting you say that, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I certainly feel is appearing is how important it is to maintain that support. Because I've heard stories from independents over the last week or so who are saying that actually some of their support is drying up and people are now going back to online shopping and supermarkets because it's easier to do that. And I think that is also something really important to bear in mind. You know, people have thought, oh heavens, I can't get my Acado, so I'll order from my local butcher and support them. But now I can get an Acado slot. It's actually about thinking about maybe maintaining some of the changes people have made to make sure that these businesses thrive. That's so important. I mean, that really is the key because it's all very well during the lockdown, three months supporting it. And then, but suddenly if, if sales go off the cliff after that, you'll suddenly think, what's the point? I really, really hope that people taste, whether it's John Lister's flour at Shipton Mill or Jenny Montgomery's cheddar or, you know, whoever it may be, I really, really hope that people have tasted, you know, sort of, it's not just some middle-class fad of, you know, wow, this expensive meat or you realize why it's a bit more expensive. You realize it's a treat. It doesn't matter whether it's fish or, or, or meat or flour. If we all stop supporting our local businesses, then that's going to be ruinous for them as well. So again, just like we're talking about restaurants, this being an absolutely crucial time. Same with food producers. I mean, you feel it now. You probably feel it where you are in the air that people are, feel that lockdown's over, even though it's not as of yet, I get the feeling tomorrow Boris will say one metre unless some amazing... I mean, this government haven't had a clue. They've been winging it the whole way through. You know, and listen, who knows what Labour would have done or, or Liberal Democrats or whatever, but it hasn't been run well. By the, you know, it hasn't been a, a good war by the government at all. It's been mixed messages and, and, and ups and downs and hypocrisies. And I'm talking in terms of food here and hospitality. I think the Chancellor's done what he's had to do with businesses and that, that's been great. But again, it's key now. You know, you've got to keep the furloughing going. There's just so much to worry about. And the hospitality trade is, industry is so important to the British economy. It's a case of, isn't it? It's a collective responsibility, I think, is what we're saying, that it's, you know, the government have to play their part and whether they've been good or not is up for debate. But also it's about us, the, the consumer, the eater, the shopper. And as you say, hopefully being able to actually experience the difference in product quality and what you're eating and actually spending more money in food and less money on, on other, you know, less important things. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. And especially in light of some of the, the country's food chains possibly yeah. deteriorating in terms of the mass supplies of, of meat and, you know, the product quality of, of what will be available on the shelves of large retailers, then at least people will now know there are other options and what those options deliver in terms of flavor, quality, produce. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting to see what the industry looks like when we flush through all of the analysis in, say, five or ten years' time. Who knows? It, it will, yeah. Be in interesting of, sorry, in terms of um, green shoots and looking positively at the future, Tom, what are you looking forward to at some point when you're able to get back to doing some of the things you used to do and love? Well, I've never walked past so many pubs and thought, 
God, I would have to go and have a pint. They just won a packet of crisps or some pork scratchings. We get very um, nostalgic. So pubs, definitely, especially in the country, a really nice pub to go and sit and look at the view. And I miss that. And we took that for granted. Obviously, restaurants. Restaurants are my life. Restaurants make me happy. I mean, there is no point being in London or Manchester or Bristol if there are no pubs, restaurants, theatres, cinemas, without the cultural, without the social life there. But you're basically thinking, God, I wish I was just in the country, you know it will come back to life. So pubs, first of all, restaurants, second, and third, the cinema. I love the cinema. I just, I miss being overcharged for, you know, rubbish popcorn and rubbish popcorn. <laughs> uh, and watching uh, rubbish films, to be honest, very, very loudly with people talking on their mobile telephones. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's those things I miss. And it, it's the feeling, we still have this, we're walking down the street and you're trying to be polite so you keep your distance you do all the things you're in a you know you're on public transport obviously wear your face mask i think as long as we keep thinking about other people hopefully and just praying that restaurants and the hospitality industry will come back to some sort of normal hopefully very much well we've got our fingers crossed and thank you so much for your time i know you're incredibly busy and it is it's such a useful perspective to hear from you and hear what you're hearing and certainly we have a place on our website where we have a directory of artisan food suppliers. I think having listened to this, we shall top up those lists of who's doing what so people can find them and hopefully everyone will come out the other end safe and well. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. What a great guest Tom was and so interesting to hear what's happening for restaurants, producers and of course food writers now that we're in the second half of 2020 and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for the rest of the year. Now, let's hear what Robin had to say about hotels. Robin Hudson is one of the UK's leading hoteliers and a prominent spokesperson for the hospitality industry. He is the man behind some of the UK's best-loved hotels. In the mid-1990s, Robin established the Hotel Duval chain, putting his home up as a guarantee to get it off the ground. He sold the company in the early 2000s and then went on to build the Pig collection of hotels. He's also CEO of Limewood in the New Forest. The Pig hotels are mostly country retreats in either listed or heritage buildings and have a devoted following for their smart yet relaxed surroundings, polished yet unstuffy service and a very special approach to food. Each site has its own kitchen garden and up to around 90% of the produce they use is sourced from a 25-mile radius. A very high proportion of the food served on all menus throughout the day is made in-house. There are now hotels in the group situated from Bridge Place in Kent to Harlem Bay in Cornwall. Robin Hudson, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast. Good morning, uh, Charlotte. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Now, Robin, let's take a step back first. Perhaps you could talk us through the last few months for you and your businesses and how that's been for you. Yeah, it's where to start, really, I suppose. I mean, it's been, it's been said many times before. It's been an unprecedented period for everyone. So, But particularly for us in the hospitality industry, it really has been a, a, quite a challenge. I think, you know, when you cast your mind back to February of this year, Coronavirus was something that was happening on the other side of the world. Uh, we've seen those situations before with SARS and Ebola, and you know these were things that didn't touch us in in southern England. So I think initially, I'm not sure we really took it that seriously. And then, of course, as it gathered pace into Italy, and then uh, it was pretty obvious it was it was going to come here. And then, to be honest, you know, we were trying to 
play catch up with what was going on and what we needed to do. All of our hotels obviously were open. We run very high occupancies anyway, and so everywhere was full. And then, you know, within a week, we were closed down. I think we were given notice on the Friday that the Saturday evening would be the last restaurant service allowed. We had full hotels everywhere, even though at that time, you know, people were starting to exercise some distance and the other kind of measures that were were, were starting to be commonplace, uh, you know, things like the, the sanitization of hands. And, and if you remember, you know, you couldn't get loo roll and hand sanitizer to save your life at, the, at that time. So, so that was all, you know, very strange. And then all of a sudden we were closed. And from an operational perspective, the guests were one part of the equation, but actually the the big thing for us was that, you know, we employ something over 800 staff across the hotels. And so we were very, very relieved when the government stepped in with the furlough scheme fairly early because, you know, we could see restaurants in London, for instance, who were already beginning to lay people off and make people redundant. So we didn't really know what was what was coming coming next at that stage. Wow. So virtually all of your staff furloughed at the moment still? Yeah, I think the... The current count as of last week was something like 780 staff are furloughed. The only people we have kept in the hotels really actually are the kitchen gardeners because we couldn't really let the gardens get overrun. Um, we have some security in the hotels and then things like reservations and we, we, we have one or two people in HR and marketing really just for communications with everyone. So it's a real skeleton team that we have still working, although we are just starting Towards the end of, uh, of June, and we're just starting to bring some more people back on, particularly in reservations, actually, as our reservations lines are open for the rest of the summer now. As a business owner myself, Robin, just thinking that that furlough obviously is finite, the, the period that the government will furlough. This was all totally unexpected in terms of cash flow and, and operations. And then you're going to be bringing people back. The furlough scheme will end, but there's clearly a loss of business that is a serious situation to recoup. And I'm guessing therein lies the challenge as well as what the new normal looks like and and how to get up and running safely and that kind of thing. But commercially, very, very challenging, I would think. Yeah, I mean, you know, in any business, cash is king, isn't it? And so so looking after the cash flow is absolutely paramount. And we took advantage of one of the interest-free loans from the government so we borrowed four million pounds to just really to look after our cash flow. I mean, just to to close the doors on all these hotels, it costs us a considerable amount of money just to to stay shut. You know, not all the bills disappear, of course. So it doesn't matter whether it's the the water rates or the photocopier contract. You know, it, they're still there. And whilst you can do your best to mitigate some of those, you know, we burn through a lot of cash just just anyway. Plus, we we elected to top up some of our staff and also some of the staff who fell through the furlough net, we elected to look after as well. So, so yeah, we have some pretty considerable outgoings even, even, even now. And with all that help, and, uh, you know, I think the government initially did a brilliant job with, with those measures, I have to say. I mean, it, it would have been a very different and much more ugly picture if that hadn't hadn't come through so really it's a question of i think looking at the the length and depth of the trough with no income and really i mean we spend a lot of time 
looking at our various cash flow models and trying to second guess what it might look like for the rest of the summer and into the autumn. And the furlough scheme, of course, was super simple to start with. Everyone that qualified up to £2,500 a month were paid 80% of their salary. That's pretty straightforward. But of course, now the furlough scheme, I think rightly so, is designed to encourage businesses to get running again and people back to work. And so it's sort of feathered off towards the end of, of October. So it begins to begins to cost the employer some contribution. So managing that and managing how many staff to bring back at any one time with trying to second-guess levels of business with all the other factors involved in that, are, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging enough, to be fair. Yeah. So your customers have been booking online to come back. What's the response been to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, we've had very good response. I have to say, we opened up the reservations lines last Monday, and I think in, in 24 hours, we've taken 800 room nights. So, you know, I think there's, uh, there certainly appears to be demand. There are conflicting influences, though, here. So, you know, on the one side, you've got quite a pent-up demand. People are desperate to go on holiday somewhere. The staycation feels like a safe place to, to be rather than a budget flight to Malaga. Uh, so I think that's all very, very positive. And actually, I think in the fullness of time, is positive for, for the industry. And no matter what happens for the balance of this summer and this year, I think if the virus is under control in 21, I think we are set for a bumper period, you know, as we, as we go forward. So if businesses can somehow weather the storm, then, then I think next year could be, could be very good. So there's the, the demand aspect, which I think is generally strong. But of course, there's also a, a nervousness and a confidence factor. I think the word really is trust. You know, I think the, the, the guests need to be able to trust the establishment that they're doing everything they can to keep the guests safe. And equally, from our perspective, we absolutely need to keep the staff safe. You know, we want to anyway, but of course, if, if we start losing lots and lots of staff, even if they're just self-isolating without actually having the virus, then operationally, it would become very, very difficult as well. So, you know, I've been vocal in wanting to shorten distance and, you know, make the, the return to normality as, as easy as possible. But it has to be safe. And I think everyone is aware that we certainly, and the government keep talking about that we don't want, you know, a second spike in this thing. And I do think if there was a second spike, that would completely tip a lot of businesses over the edge. You know, I think there's a there's a kind of determination to get through this at the moment and a, and a steely resolve to make it work and see it to the end. But if we're slaughtered again, you know, come the autumn, then I think that would become very, very difficult. Yeah. So assuming that everything does open up again in early July, as expected at the moment, what can guests expect who are coming to visit you? We've talked long and hard about this, and, and, and it is this balance of keeping people safe whilst trying to exercise some level of normality. People visit hotels and restaurants not just to have somewhere to sleep and nourish themselves. They go there because of the, 
the social experience and the atmosphere and the environment that's that's created. And, and if you like, you know, the theatre that a hotel or restaurant creates is is just a, a moment in time away from their their normal lives, perhaps. And so, and of course, it's become so much part of the culture of this country in the last, you know, certainly in, in my career, that you know, it's a very common activity and up and down the price points, you know. So, in fact, the, you know, the kind of millennial crowd, you know, seem to be eating out more than anyone. You know, they, they're never at home cooking. They're, they're always out having a pizza or something, you know. So, so that sort of social aspect of hospitality and what we offer, we can't just throw that away, you know. I mean, that, we need to somehow hang on to that while still keeping people safe. So... As we sit here today, we don't know all the measures that may come in place or may, may be required. But I think hospitality professionals generally are very responsible. We are very used to keeping people safe. We do it every day of the week with, with food safety, with, with health and safety, environmental health, fire safety. You know, these things we are used to dealing with and we, we understand risk. And I think I think the vast majority of establishments could do a very, very good job without lots and lots of red tape, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that is particularly interesting about your locations is how the majority of them are in rural locations. I think Southampton's the only one that that isn't... uh, That's an anomaly. (laughs) Or of a city, yeah. Rural hospitality businesses are facing their own challenges and how do you think that is going to affect your business over the summer and the autumn when i visit the hotels they feel like bubbles really i mean they feel like fairly fairly safe places you know i feel much safer in the grounds of one of my hotels than i do walking down oxford street really you know it's it just feels that that a lot of people would gain some confidence about visiting those sort of establishments of course there are a number of other factors and you have to get there in, in the first place. Well, public transport, I don't think is really flavour of the month at the moment. So it really is about cars and in some cases flying. But I think car is the the simplest way and actually for most of our establishments is the way that most people arrive at our hotels anyway. So that's, that's a, something in our favour, I think. The thing about the rural hotels is that in any of the places where they uh, exist, they are at the hub of a network of all the other uh, small businesses and producers in that area, particularly how we run things. You know, we, we try to source from within 25 miles, as you mentioned in your intro- introduction. And so there's a whole network that relies on establishments like ours. Um, in most cases, we are the largest employer in that particular location. But there is a whole network and a whole community that absolutely sort of relies on us being successful. Uh, I think I've wandered from the original question there slightly. but No, uh, but it's interesting, isn't it? And I think that businesses like yours really have such an important sense of place in the community they're in and sort of bringing the community along with them and making sure that all the relationships work well locally. It's just such an important thing that it all feeds off each other, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, I've always been of the opinion that 
you know, for these businesses, a central plank of your marketing should be the fact that you look after everyone from the garbage collector to the to the postman because you never know how they're connected within the community and so on. And, and in I fact, it will come back, won't it? How people have treated others during a situation as as unusual and such a crisis as this people will remember who looked after them and perhaps who didn't and i think yeah no, i yeah. think i think you're absolutely right you know how you behave in these these times i think says a lot about you as a business i mean one of the nice stories actually that obviously we've been producing a lot of garden produce during this period you know we've got something like 12 or maybe 15 acres under food production you know which is across you know across all the hotels all sorts of different crops of course and coming into at this time of year of course they you know absolutely coming into their prime so we've been producing masses of masses of fruit and veg and eggs and all sorts that we've been trying to distribute to anyone and everyone really so we've been making regular trips to food banks and to the to our neighbours and to the needy. And the one nice little story was, I don't know whether you saw it, but the pig at Bridge Place in Kent, we're very close to Howlett Zoo. And so we did runs down to the gorillas at the zoo. So they even even the gorillas benefited from it. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Produce. <laughs> That's a great story. I'm just thinking, Robin, we, our first episode, we spoke to Mitch Tonks. Yeah. And he, he was talking about, it was a great interview. And, you know, they have suffered as, as much as anyone. He was talking about when things come back and hopefully trust, as you say, is key and will be established fairly quickly. You know, once it's tried and tested, hopefully that's that's the hotel industry up and running. Mitch was talking about people finding all sorts of things that we took for granted more special. And thinking of you talking about, you know, do you hop on a flight to Malaga or do you have a beautiful staycation in one of your hotels? So I've been lucky enough to eat at uh, the Pig in Coombe haven't yet stayed there but we're quite local and you know that would be a lovely way to spend our holiday time going somewhere just beautiful local and enjoying a special time and and do you feel that's the same for your hotels yeah i mean mitch is a a good friend of mine and you know we we have a similar kind of philosophy on life really in fact i was in a tweet exchange with him the other day he was he was talking about, you know, uh, sitting outside the seahorse with a bottle of rosé. And, and, you know, I, I said, I can't think of anything I'd rather do right now, you know, in, in, than do that. We have shared a lot of good times together. So, but yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that's, that is really the strength of the rural hospitality sector, that we, we have the opportunity of creating special moments for people and I think it absolutely will be in demand. You know, it's, I know myself that I don't really fancy the idea. I mean, we, we love to travel and we always take uh, a few trips every year. But we're, you know, we're cancelling flights right, left and centre just because we don't really fancy it. Yeah, totally. Well, listen, in terms of looking forward and things returning to a more normal state. What are you personally looking forward to, Robin? What three things are you looking forward to when we can do more of of what we used to do? So not necessarily to do with the business. Are you talking about me personally? Whatever is on your mind. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I mean, I we do love our our travel, as I've just said. So, I mean, I do look forward to the the moment where it feels safe to travel. And so, like everyone, I think at the moment, it feels like it's been a long, hard haul over the last few months. And I know for some people, perhaps they haven't had the responsibility, and so have actually enjoyed quite a nice long long break. But I have to say, from our point of view, we've been working every day and the responsibility for a lot of lot of people begins to weigh fairly heavily. So, yeah, a good holiday would be number one. But, I mean, some of the simple things, I'm a fly fisherman, so I was very re- pleased when they relaxed fishing a, a few weeks ago and so I've taken advantage of a little bit of that. So that's something that I enjoy. But actually... The example that I just gave of the bottle of rosé sitting outside with mates is something that we had, actually, we had a little party in the garden last week with six of us, and and it felt very good indeed. (laughs) So, yeah, fairly simple pleasures. Absolutely, but they'll be very well earned and deserved when you get them. So listen, thank you very, very much for your time, Robin. I know you have been and continue to be incredibly busy and hopefully you will get a holiday and a rest soon. But in the meantime, thank you so much. And we will put a link to the hotel website on our website and we wish you well and hopefully see you in one of your lovely hotels soon. Indeed. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you for your time. That was so interesting. Now, what industry news have you come across this week, Jules? Morrison's has announced it's opening a chain of supermarket takeaways with the launch of a new hot food-to-go service in all 402 of its cafes. It said the service, offering breakfast, lunch, afternoon tea or dinner, would effectively make Morrison's the nation's largest fish and chip takeaway, with its cafes already selling 2 million portions a year. Morrison's closed its customer cafes in March as a result of COVID-19, but they've since reopened to the public. And in coffee shop news, Costa Coffee is set to reopen 40% of its UK cafes by the end of June. The high street chain will be offering a takeaway service from 1,100 of its 2,600 UK stores. And finally, the debate rumbles on about whether or not the government should relax Sunday trading rules and allow supermarkets to open for longer. It's understood that the government is considering this as part of wider measures to stimulate the economy, but not all retailers are happy with the idea. In a letter to Business Secretary Alec Sharma, Co-op Mid-County CEO Phil Ponsonby has warned that proposed changes would deny remote and deprived communities of access to essential services. He fears that driving people to shop more in supermarkets on Sundays could threaten the economic viability of some local community stores. And in fact, on that note, my local store, Stoke Gabriel Stores, was on the BBC Radio 4 food programme where I used to work. They were on yesterday. Yesterday was Sunday. And I've just listened to the episode this morning. I finally caught up with it. And it's so lovely to hear my local shop owner talking about what she's done. And I would like to pay tribute to what a wonderful shop she runs. And the service she has provided has been absolutely out of this world. So big up to the local community stores. That's amazing. And how fortunate you are to have such a lovely shop just on your doorstep. Amazing work. And thanks for your insights, as always, Jules. Really, really interesting. So on to our listener questions for this week. What do people want to know? Well, 
We have been asked, I'm guessing this is someone who might live by the coast, can you tell us about cooking with seaweed? Have you got any advice? I actually did a, a seaweed foraging course a couple of years ago, and it's amazing. You can eat most seaweed, but you have to do different things with different types. What's your advice on seaweed, Charlotte? Absolutely. It is just such an interesting food to enjoy, and it is one of the most nutritious foods in the world. So it's super good for you and it's really, really delicious. Now your seaweed foraging course sounds really interesting. And actually, if you're thinking of harvesting seaweed to eat, I would actually recommend possibly considering a course or just reading up a little bit before you do it. The reason for that is a lot of seaweed that you can see when you're on the beach is not the sort of seaweed you want to be eating. So there are lots of different types of seaweed, but in terms of picking it, you need to really pick stuff that's a little bit further out, that's going to be safe and suitable to eat. So I wouldn't recommend just going to the beach and picking up something that's washed up. I'd absolutely say that's a complete no-no, but I would try and read up about it and try and equip yourself with a bit of information if you want to pick it yourself, which is of course delicious. But in terms of cooking with seaweed, you can actually buy lots of dried seaweeds and they're really, really interesting to cook with. So for example, there are lots of different seaweeds you can buy. There are obviously seaweed sheets that are sold in lots of supermarkets for rolling sushi, nori sheets. But some of the other dried nori uh, sheets are really, really nice. They're a bit thinner. They're not designed to be a vehicle for rolling sushi and they're really nice sprinkled on top of dishes so I like them on top of raw fish dishes such as a poke or even on top of a salad just crumble and crunch the um, flakes up using your fingers and they add a wonderful seasoning to a dish you can also buy some really interesting dried seaweed mixes Often a mix of dolls, um, different sort of Japanese seaweeds, and they come in a sort of fine powdered mix, and they're really good as well. It's really nice to serve that with fish, and it's really delicious, stirred through mayonnaise or tartar sauce with a bit of seaweed, which is a gorgeous combination with fresh fish. The other thing I just encourage you to look out for are some of the dried Japanese seaweed mixes. Now you can find them in a lot of Asian shops online, Japanese supermarkets, Japanese specialists sell them. And you buy this sort of paper sachet of dried seaweed and that's so delicious. You just rehydrate it and then you can put on like a sesame oil and um, soy sauce dressing. And that's so delicious and really easy to do and really nourishing. Amazing, just cold on its own. I like it with toasted sesame seeds on black and white, great with noodles, some salmon, for example, finished with salmon. It's so delicious. So really it's possibly more accessible than you think. And there are lots of different safe and easy types of seaweeds you can buy to enjoy. Fabulous, healthy and delicious. That's always a win in my book. And then we have been asked, it sparked quite a lot of interest what you were talking about last week in terms of cooking green vegetables. Can you elaborate on last week's advice, Charlotte, and maybe tell us a little bit more? So green vegetables, all types of green vegetables. I think what I mentioned last week is they really benefit from being cooked in boiling water and not putting the lid on because if you put the lid on anything green it turns yellow really quickly. So if you're boiling green vegetables make sure you've got a pan rolling boil with a bit of salt in before you put the vegetables in. Don't put them in cold water and bring them up to the boil. The key is to cook them really quickly. Now what you can do when they're cooked is you can rinse them under cold water to refresh them slightly and that will set the colour in as well and prevent them from discolouring. 
if you're steaming green vegetables, again, you really need to watch the timings on this. You need to really set a timer and watch them like a hawk. You probably only need about three to seven minutes, depending on the type of green vegetable you need. And of course, because you're steaming, you have a lid on. So that's why you really need to watch the time because again, they can go over so quickly. And a lot of green vegetables actually respond really well to roasting. So just putting on a tray, putting them into a hot oven, maybe about 180, 200 degrees, gas mark four or five, with a drizzle of olive oil, sprinkle of sea salt on, is so delicious and really, really easy. So green beans, for example, broccoli, all types of broccoli, I like uh, brassica leaves, for example, kales, cavolo nero, delicious roasted. They really don't take long, maybe 10 to 20 minutes, depending on the thickness. And that's a fantastically delicious way of cooking green vegetables as well. It's really easy as well. You know, you can put them in the oven and get on with something else as long as you set the timer. Lovely. Thank you very much. Great tips as always, Charlotte. And thank you to our lovely guests and of course our fabulous listeners. We've been seeing our listener numbers rocket up and up and up, which is absolutely great. Very encouraging. So dearest listener, please do share the podcast and let people know if you like it. And we will catch you next week for episode 11. Thank you very much. So we'd just like to finish by saying thanks for listening, folks. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question about food and drink during the pandemic, drop us an email. We're on hello at pandemic-pantry.co.uk. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram under Pandemic Pantry Podcast. And if you'd like to enter our weekly competition to win a case of delicious Moorish dips or one of our other great giveaways, just head to our website and look in the competition section. The website address once more is www.pandemic-pantry.co.uk and we'll see you next week.